So thank you everybody for coming to an in conversation. Um, as you can see, we're informal here. So uh, we um, and these are these are these. In, let me tell you a little bit about in conversation. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll clear my throat too. Um, in conversations are an on kind of an offshoot of Friday gallery talks that happen here regularly every Friday with a guest artist or a scholar. Um, who are talking about art. And so we added on this idea of in conversation. So my, this is my little like preamble to let people, stragglers come in. So you guys can zone out a little bit if you want. Um, but we, um, we like to do in conversations with an artist or two artists, um, a curator and an artist, uh, to talk about the artist's work and also to, um, to bring in, in larger issues into talking about that work. So. Today we're really excited because it's become a panel through a Transformers um, framework panel that they do. And um, so it's an unusual situation for us. Uh, it means that our program is going to go till 2 o'clock instead of uh, 1.30. Because we want to allow for as much exchange as possible, as well as um, the audience to ask questions. So this mic will be available after the presentations for you to ask questions about this, um, the subject. So um, thank you for coming. Uh, Let's see if I, I want to make sure I've covered everything. So today we'll be doing Transformers panel 12 called Radical Art, the Evolution of Artistic Evolution. And um, so when we say radical art, there's no children here, but when we say radical art, it means that we'll be looking at the practice of radical artists. So just letting you know that. Um, and also talking about what that means now and talk about what kind of issues um, are connected to that and that uh, the very fact that this panel is happening in a museum is an interesting thing to talk about too. Can you be radical in a museum? Um, uh, what does that look like now? So I'm going to just ask a lot of questions during this whole thing and um, hopefully it will stimulate um, a larger conversation that happens um, after the, the presenters. But first, before uh, we talk, um, I want to bring up uh, Victoria here to talk to you a little bit about Transformers Mission and the Framework Panel. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, great. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Ryan, so much. Um, in addition to Ryan's role here at the Hirshhorn, he's also on the board of Transformer, and uh, we're really thrilled that the Hirshhorn has been so supportive of our mission and encouraging of uh, collaborating and presenting this panel. So thank you very much. Um, um, as Ryan introduced me, I'm Victoria Reese, the founder and executive and artistic director of Transformer. And for those that aren't maybe familiar with our, our program, our mission is to uh, support through exhibitions and programs um, emerging artists and also uh, generate uh, dialogue around emergent expression in the visual arts. Um, and increase dialogue about contemporary arts. Uh, it's really an honor and a thrill to have all of these panelists here today. Um, I got my start in the art, visual arts through the National Association of Artist Organizations, the field of artist-run or artist-centered organizations all around the country. And Martha Wilson, in particular, from Franklin Furness, is a great influence on me in, in my career as I was uh, developing as an arts organizer and curator, and I'm really thrilled to have her here today, as well as Edgar Endress, and also Alex Sagade, who um, in tandem with uh, Alex, also Jade Gordon, and Malik Gaines, who are all part of My Barbarian, who will be 
uh, doing an, an artistic action on the steps of the Hirshhorn later this afternoon at 3.30, and we'll also be performing at Transformer tomorrow at 8 p.m. Um, we have a handout about the framework panel um, that I think our board president was, James Elefantis was handing out. It's also on the back table. Um, and just to give you a little bit of an overview about the framework panel series, uh, we do these panels about three times a year, and really it's a particular program to um, look at best practices in the field of contemporary art and provide an oral field guide um, to emerging artists and to audiences about um, contemporary art practice. So um, we're really thrilled to have received a recent NEA grant to support the series that allowed us to bring all of these great people here. And so without further ado, I'll let them talk and share their work. So that was pretty much an introduction. Um, but uh, I'm going to do short introductions of everybody, um, just so that you kind of um, know where they're coming from. And also, too, uh, the, what James has handed out to everybody, are on the back of it are longer um, bios on each of these artists. So um, that might fill in any gaps in my introductions. So our first um, panelist is uh, Martha Wilson. And uh, she's the founding member of a 1978 um, in 1978 of Disband, the New York-based all-girl conceptual feminist punk rock band um, of artists who can't play instruments. And usually when they say punk rock bands. <laughs> um, she, uh, since it disbanded in 1982, she's performed the guise of Alexander Haig, Nancy Reagan, Barbara Bush, and Tipper Gore. Uh, she is the founding director of Franklin Furnace Archive, Inc., um, an institution since its inception in 1976 that has presented preserved temporal art and this is all kinds of art, everything from artist books and other multiples produced by um, uh, artists uh, and internationally since 1960 to temporary installations and performance art. Uh, in 1985, Franklin Furnace was established um, and established, or no, 1985 they established a fund that also gives to five to ten artists annually, is that right? Um, which is great. And this is in New York. Um, and, um, in Mo MoMA uh, purchased Franklin Furnace's collection of art books in 1993 and created the uh, Modern Art Franklin Furnace Artist Book Collection, um, which is open to any artist who can say that this is a book, which I really like. You say this is a book and it gets in, so that's nice. Um, it can be viewed online at both websites. She also lectures widely on books as art, performance, and variable media. Um, Alex Sagade, can I say that? How did I say it? Sagade. Sagade. Um, he is one of the founding members in 2000 of My Barbarian, and it's an LA-based group that uses theater, video, and play to question cultural myths and political norms. Um, he has also um, had uh, solo video performances uh, at uh, LAX Art in 2010, and migrating forms at the Anthology Film Archive in New York City. He has, he has written for publications including Art Lies and Art um, US, curates the Imaginary Film Festival and the Red Cat Studio Performance Program in Los Angeles. Um, Edgar Endress, his um, solo work has been shown <clears throat> internationally at MoMA, New England Film and Video Festival, Boston Fine Arts Museum, New York Video Festival, and Lincoln Center. He is the assistant professor, he is a assistant professor at George Mason University uh, in the Department of Arts and Visual Technology. 
Um, in 2007, he founded the uh, Floating Lab Collective, and that's a Washington, D.C.-based group that, um, of artists that work uh, collectively on public art and media projects. Um, the collective has upcoming exhibits in um, NGBK Berlin and the Intermedia Festival in uh, Indianapolis. So each of these presenters will present for about 15 minutes about their work, and I may ask questions after, either to clarify or to bring up the topic, and then afterwards we'll just kind of open it up for discussion. So thank you very much for being here. We're really excited. So. Taiching Shei, one year performance 1981-82, exhibited as an installation at Franklin Furnace from February 16th to March 12th, 1983. Performance art, in my view, is the opposite of theater, which holds, according to Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the willful suspension of disbelief as its objective. Performance art has raided literature, music, dance, and theater traditions, while theater has borrowed from performance art conventions, spreading confusion, but in general, performance artists remind their audiences, there is no artifice here. This is happening now in real time. Because it is embedded in the body, Performance art takes time itself to be its primary subject. Ching Che's one-year performances, during which time, for example, he lived in a cage, punched a time clock every hour, lived outside, was tied to another person, and did no art, placed the body's expenditure of time at the center of the idea. Carnival Knowledge, The Second Coming, 1984. During the 1980s, avant-garde artists lost their place as the darlings of American culture allowed to experiment wildly and freely. Gradually, the administration of Ronald Reagan and conservative religious groups promulgated the idea that artists were the virus eating at the health of the body politic. In 1984, Franklin Furness exhibited Carnival Knowledge, curated by nine women artists and activists who asked if there could be such a thing as feminist pornography or pornography which didn't denigrate women or children. The Carnival Knowledge Feminist Collective invited Annie Sprinkle, a porn star, and the members of her porn star support group, Club 90, to participate in their January event at Franklin Furness. The performance itself, entitled Deep Inside Porn Stars, involved tea and cookies and sought to remind the audience that sex workers are mothers, daughters, wives, and women, just like their feminist counterparts. It was at this event that Annie Sprinkle changed her identity from porn star to performance artist, contrasting the persona of Ellen Steinberg, a fat girl raised in Southern California, with Annie Sprinkle, a gorgeous porn star who lives in New York. After Carnival Knowledge closed at the end of January, the Morality Action Committee swung into action, writing postcards to our elected officials and letters to Franklin Furness's corporate and foundation supporters claiming that we had shown pornography to 500 children per day. As a result of the culture wars in which this was an early skirmish, the work of especially performance artists became politically impossible and the individual artist fellowship program of the National Endowment for the Arts was killed off. Karen Finley, A Woman's Life Isn't Worth Much, 1990. In 1983, Karen Finley performed for the first time in New York at Franklin Furnace with her husband, Brian Routh, one of the Kipper kids. She used plenty of fluids, taking a bath in a suitcase and making love to a chair with Wesson cooking oil. Nothing happened as her performance was standard downtown fare. In fact, I told Karen she should move to New York and she did. Then in 1989, as a result of her performance, constant state of desire, Karen was branded the chocolate smeared young woman by conservative columnists Evans and Novak. 
This is because she smeared her naked breasts with chocolate frosting to symbolize the degradation of women, then sprinkled bean sprouts, then glitter on top. In addition to her bare bosoms, I think what also made the guys angry were the Woolworths cotton underpants and loafers and tube socks, items of clothing which resist the sexual gaze. Franklin Furnace presents emerging artists selected by peer reviews panels from among proposals submitted from around the world. Karen Finley successfully made the case that while she had emerged as a performance artist, she was emerging as a visual artist and proposed an installation, A Woman's Life Isn't Worth Much, consisting of, of texts and images drawn directly on the walls of Franklin Furnace as well as altered book covers and a slab of granite with text which we installed on the front radiator. By 1990, the culture wars were in full swing, so I asked John Frondmeyer, chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, if he would come to Franklin Furnace to see for himself that Karen Finley's work was not obscene. But he declined. William Popel, how much is that nigger in the window? William Popel asked if he could do a residency at Franklin Furnace during our downtime in the summer of 1991. He wanted to have enough time to prepare an installation, a performance, and a public crawl. For William, and maybe for every artist, art is a visceral process that feels like the right, or maybe the wrong, thing to do, which makes it the right thing to do. His crawl pieces literally place his body in the position of homeless people, taking it out of the vertical posture, representing power, forcing him into, and his unwitting audience, to look at bodies that have been rendered invisible. The contradiction he uses to focus us upon the body in Tompkins Square Park crawl, which would be unremarkable in tattered clothes, was a very nice suit. This black man in a suit is crawling in the gutter of the Bowery. Another black man told him to get up because he was degrading the image of black people. At the end of Williams' residency at Franklin Furnace in the summer of 1991, he performed How Much Is That Nigger in the Window? Uh, he was pretty much butt naked except for jockey shorts sitting on a platform in our storefront window on Franklin Street. During the performance, he smeared mayonnaise on his skin in, it, in an attempt to become white. The mayonnaise oxidized, becoming transparent, making William's black skin shiny. Voyeur's Delight, 1996. Franklin Furnace got in trouble with the religious rite for the third and last time for mounting this exhibition, Voyeur's Delight. Curated by Barbara Rusin and Grace Rosselli, it brought together works of art which explored the power of looking, ranging from a clinical pathological definition postulating voyeurism as a perversion to voyeuristic pleasures as a prime aspect of media culture, particularly cyberspace, the ultimate detached voyeur medium which allows freedom from gender instantaneously and anonymously. Jocelyn Taylor's installation was comprised of a room with a mirrored floor which enabled viewers to look up women's skirts and small video monitors inset which showed images of her vagina spread with a speculum so we could look up her snatch. The piece concerns the invasive women, the invasive nature of Western medical science in regard to women's bodies. Anyway, a group entitled the Christian Action Network claimed that Franklin Furnace had raised $100,000 in federal funding for this exhibition. 
We had indeed just received a $100,000 advancement grant from the NEA, so they got the math right. But what was galling about their strategy was that the Christian Action Network used performance art tactics to dramatize their claim. They dressed up a guy as the Grim Reaper and built two coffins which they filled with flyers, one calling for the death of Franklin Furness and one calling for the death of the National Endowment for the Arts to carry up the steps of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. According to colleagues who attended the protest, a National Guardsman told them, you can only carry one coffin up the steps. To this day, we don't know which coffin they chose. Um, this is our last show in real time and space at Franklin Furnace before we went virtual. Uh, and when we went virtual, we, we got smart about our website is our public face and we put the artist's explanation of what her intention was with the image so that it couldn't be separated out by the religious right so easily anyway. Oops. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what I'm I don't know what's going on here. I'm supposed to see a little thing that I'll click. Well, they they're both videos, so I don't I don't know. Escape. Oh, escape. Okay. Magic of Marissa. Okay, hold on a second. I'm sorry, it is supposed to be learning something that it doesn't seem to. Oh, there this it is. Huh? Okay, good. All right, that's great. Wait, oh, no, just click where the Okay. Okay, good. There we go. Uh, Joshua Kinberg and Yuri Gitman, Bikes Against Bush. A collaboration by Joshua Kinberg and Yuri Gitman selected for Franklin Furnace's 2004-2005 season marked the convergence of the body and technology. Their magic bike is a mobile Wi-Fi wireless internet hotspot that provides free internet access wherever it travels. A custom-designed printing device mounted on a bike sprays chalk, spray chalk text messages from web users to the surface of the street overlapping public art with techno-activism by creating a montage of the community wireless movement, bicycle culture, street demonstrations, and contemporary art. Theory became practice on August 30, 2004, when the magic bike being ridden by Kinberg in preparation for protest at the Republican National Convention in New York City was impounded by the police on the grounds that text messages being printed on the street would deface public property and were therefore subject to laws intended to prohibit graffiti. Kinberg's collaborator, Yuri Gitman, was on the scene with a camera as the arrest took place. 
The court case went forward, clearing Kinberg. However, the magic bike was lost while in the possession of the New York City Fire Department and the Police Department. We're not going to watch the whole thing. He's arrested and then the bike is impounded. Oop. Okay. All right. In 1985, a bunch of downtown feminist artists became outraged by Kiniston McShine's remark that anyone not in his MoMA International Survey of Painting and Sculpture show should re-examine his career. The show included 169 artists, 13 of whom were women. Even fewer than 13 were artists of color, and none of these were female. After five whole minutes of research, the founders of the Guerrilla Girls decided to publish their findings about discrimination in the art world on posters put up in the dead of night in Soho. The group decided to remain anonymous by taking the names of dead women artists so that targets could not claim our, our complaints were just sour grapes. And we decided to use gorilla masks to maintain our anonymity after one of our members who was taking minutes misspelled the word gorilla. You're probably wondering why if the gorilla girls derived their power from being anonymous I am telling you this stuff. We realized at the turn of the millennium that our archives would be of value to the history of feminism and so the archives committee on which I served as Gertrude Stein with Frida Kahlo and Alice Neal approached five institutions in 2008 settling on the Getty Research Institute for our archives new home. So the jig is up. But to all you feminists out there, don't despair. At the turn of the millennium the original unincorporated collective formed three uh, wings of the Guerrilla Girls. Guerrilla Girls Inc., Guerrilla Girls on Tour, and Guerrilla Girls Broadband to continue to bring feminism and fake fur to new frontiers. Okay. Thank you so much, Alex. Very kind of you. All right. Yay. Good evening. I'm Barbara Bush, ex First Lady of the United States wife and confidant of George Herbert Walker Bush, 41st President of the United States, mother and confidant of Jeb Bush, ex-governor of the great state of Florida, mother and confidant of George W. Bush, 43rd President of the United States. If power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, I guess you might say I'm the sexiest woman in the free world. <laughs> oh, who am I kidding? I'm all washed up! <laughs> the end. <laughs> Do you want to trade seats? Um, well, yeah, we should trade seats. I actually, um, <laughs> I guess one of the things that's kind of might be that might come up naturally is um, the difference Thanks. between um, that you're seeing between how artists are, are addressing the mediums of performance and uh, oh, I should be using the microphone. I'm sorry. Um, so I guess uh, a question comes up for me is if you see a difference between 
um, how performers are addressing you know, perform, uh, issues of performance uh, now. And, and, and also, I think because of the, um, the switch over to kind of the virtual, do you see, how do you see performance kind of working virtually? Uh, the issues that were hot button issues of the 80s have changed. It used to be sex, 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 homosexuality, you know, transgender sex, all kinds of sex. No. Nowadays it's privacy, surveillance, online, the online community, the, the, uh, the networked environment in which we're living, and artists are engaged with it as a, both a, an art venue medium and a, a way to protest that very same art medium and venue. It's interesting because I think you've written a lot about how um, about, about the body and, and performance is kind of in the body and in the present. And you, you even you know saying that you know it's embedded in the now. Yeah. And we're talking about uh, something that isn't you know. But as Ricardo uh, uh -huh. Dominguez has so uh, presciently said, the body of the net is the is the next body. Great. Well, let's return to that. I think that's an interesting thing to come back to. So. Alex? Um, okay, so I'll be um, presenting on behalf of My Barbarian, which is a um, collaborative amongst three artists, uh, Malik Gaines, Jade Gordon, and myself, um, and we work interdisciplinarily, um, which means we come from sort of different backgrounds in terms of our um, studies and our um, training, but we come together to make the work. We also collaborate with a lot of other people um, in order to make our projects. Um, I just wanted to present a couple of pieces um, and as opposed to trying to give you a full narrative of what we've been doing together for the last 10 years. Um, so here, here goes. Um, I kind of also wanted to say that it, it's, um, it's a pleasure to be on this panel uh, for a number of reasons and um, of course the Gorilla Girls are a huge deal <laughs> for us so, so that's kind of amazing and, and with that in mind I wanted to show uh, this very first slide is a, um, is a picture from a piece from 2002 called Squirrel Radio Action. Uh, in 2004, My Barbarian made a street theater performance for KPCC, the Pasadena NPR affiliate, which became both a radio play and a video. We portrayed the squirrels of the Angeles Crest National Forest. The California ground squirrel carries the bubonic plague and must be monitored by the park rangers. If too many squirrels die off, the fleas will start looking for other hosts, which may include humans. As the disease-ridden rodent characters, we sang protest songs about urban planning at City Hall, among other public locations in LA, and held up signs reading, sorry for the plague, until the cops inevitably told us to go away. I think that's a rite of passage for performance artists, you know. You have to at least get in trouble with the cops once. Um, okay. Uh, the next one I just wanted to show, another one to kind of give you some background before I go into um, detail on one specific piece, is called Gods of Canada, and this was made in 2005. Uh, My Barbarian became the Gods of Canada, superhero alter egos who champion the liberal social policies of Canada. We sailed around Lake Ontario with banners designed to celebrate gay marriage, universal health care, and progressive drug policies, <laughs> narcotics policies. We marched along the boardwalk of the Harborfront Center and performed an open-air concert outside the Power Plant uh, Contemporary Art Museum, all in the faux Canadian characters we had created. 
Um, I was a Quebecois super separatist named Jacques Pouvoir, FYI. Uh, the performance honored Canada Day. It was supported by the Canadian Arts Council, among other public and private Canadian institutions. At the time of the performance, Bush had just been re-elected, and there was a lot of talk about moving to Canada. And one thing I wanted to um, kind of bring up before I go into the next thing is to think, start thinking, for me to start thinking really about uh, this question of collaboration versus intervention and how given that uh, in many ways because of the legacy of performance artists um, from, um, from the, the 80s um, they, uh, and 90s and you know, also the relational aesthetic works and stuff like that the institution brings interventions into it, and so the question becomes, is it still an intervention, or what are we intervening with, or how is an intervention a collaboration in the first place? Um, so this project that kind of engages some of that um, is called the Post-Living Anti-Action Theater. And in, so in 2008, we began a workshop and performance project, which is ongoing, called the Post-Living Anti-Action Theater, or POLAT. The project was envisioned as a way to work with a large group of artists in creating theater works, performance works, in a variety of institutional settings, which would be as much about the process of artistic collaboration as they are about grappling with a history of radical leftist uh, artistic production and specifically theater. Uh, we were thinking about we were thinking about the living theater um, and their Autodian experiments, their life force enacted by the chorus forming the common from difference in an enactment of the ecstatic. This is an image of Paradise Now, taken in 1969. I was more familiar uh, at the beginning of this project with the anti-theater, uh, which had once been called the Action Theater, um, formed in the wake of a living theater performance that happened in Munich in the 60s. Um, and the anti-theater was evocative of and interconnected with other communal groups in Bavaria at that time, such as the music group um, Amendul, which um, had been a commune, and of course the Bader Meinhof, which they were implicated with in different ways. Um, Fassbinder's response to Brecht was a melancholy Marxist theatricalization of attitudes, not characters. This is an image uh, from The Burning Village, a play from 1974, which illustrates this last point. The anti-theater's response to the living theater was actually a piece called Pre-Paradise, Sorry Now. Um, we had taken a workshop, the three of us, uh, from Augusto Boal um, in the mid-2000s in an attempt to learn how to engage groups in theater games and exercises which form the orthodoxy of the theater of the oppressed performance practice which is often used as a tool for political empowerment and consciousness raising. So those were sort of the influences and things we were looking at when we came up with this. Um, so this is the post-living anti-action theater's own uh, um, orthodoxy. Uh, it's a performance system that gives the ecstatic chorus of the living theater the critical attitude of the anti-theater, thereby liberating the theater of the oppressed from a use value beyond its own interpersonal exchange value. These are five principles. Each of the principles is described in a song, and each principle guides the making of the performances which have been presented by the Polot. What follows are illustrations of the principles accompanied by quotes from the songs uh, taught in workshops as a means of mobilizing the concepts. I'm just going to go through this quickly. Estrangement. Draw a perforated line around your body. Uh, also, act out the, the distance between yourself and what you're doing. With a line around your body, adapt the alienation effect. Estrangement also incorporates elements of camp. 
in distinction. Contradictory formal and institutional distinctions are set in oppositional motion. The performer does two things at once, such as singing a love song and paying taxes. Suspension of beliefs. Now, this, one's, uh, this is an interesting one, and it's interesting that you mentioned that at the beginning, um, Martha, of your talk. Um, when we were trying to translate suspension of beliefs, which is a play on suspension of disbelief, um, into Arabic, it became tedar tisada elin tishaifu, which actually means can you believe what you see. In Lithuanian, uh, we had a lot of trouble translating this particular term, uh, but we ended up going with ishlisk ish dejutes, which means um, get out of the small box. Mandate to participate. Um, this is just, I mean, I think this one sort of says it all, but uh, <laughs> uh, this is some of the lyrics. Each rehearsal is a show, each show is a life, each life's a rehearsal for a better life. If we make each show better than the show we expect, then our life will get respect. And then you say, come on, eight times, and preferably take off your clothes or something like that at that point. Um, inspirational critique uh, was a play on the concept of institutional critique and has to do with a number of different uh, influences and things we were dealing with at the time that we came up with this project. Um, and I'm just going to let you very quickly look at that and not read it to you. Okay. Um, the first Polot was created in residency at the New Museum in New York City. The participants were artists, such as Daniel McDonald and Ginger Brooks Takahashi. Over the course of two weeks, we used theater games to address questions we had about democratic participation, which we were feeling optimistic about because we had all been excited by the democratic primary. The final workshops were staged as public performances on the weekend of July 4, 2008. We called the play Post Paradise, Sorry Again. Post Paradise Sorry Again was staged as a public workshop that directly addressed the audience in an attempt to find models of political debate and democratic action within the canon of theater history by adapting texts for performance by the group. Our Town by Thornton Wilder, What Use Are Flowers by Lorraine Hansberry, Paradise Lost by Clifford Odets, We Did Some Brecht, Genet, Carson McCullers, and a play called Sha Japang, a popular play from the Chinese Cultural Revolution. In the winter of 2008, we used an Art Matters grant to go do a polot in Cairo, Egypt. Many of the participants in this group were uh, students. Um, some were professional actors in theater. There was a theater director in the group, um, including Mai Salem, Mohamed Marus, and Maliha Maslamani. Um, in the workshop, storytelling exercises gave us a means of talking about differences and affinities across cultures while generating scenarios to be acted out by the group. The acting games gave us a means of playing out anxieties often repressed in order to survive in the megalopolis that is Cairo, while also bringing to light common problems. For example, everyone seemed to dislike the omnipresence of the police, but in a police state, this is not something you can say freely, so we used movement games to communicate ideas of freedom. The final performance was entitled 11 Human Senses and purported to be a series of lessons drawn from a papyrus scroll found in an ancient alien pyramid which enumerated those senses, such as humor, taste, style, and imagination, that generate culture. The performance was also about surviving Cairo. In many of the scenes, we played groups of people on the street, at work, in cafes, in the subway, dancing together, even at war with one another. The Polot workshop is preoccupied with the question of the group as a means of support or suppression of the individual, 
In our quest to understand how one may belong and how belonging shapes believing, we have held workshops like this one in Los Angeles, which also became a video piece, in which we attempt to levitate someone through the concerted effort of many minds. Sometimes it works better than other times. In Trento, Italy, a small town in the Alps, the Polot became a means for the young participants to create a community, most of whom were civil servants with only a few semi-professional artists, including several musicians. We had a lot of time together and, with their help, were able to translate our texts into Italian songs while exhuming buried political histories, such as the controversial Brigata Rosa, which originated from the region, while learning a lot about the contemporary Italian version of democracy. We gave the group, which already had a kind of hippie-ish leaning, they, were, they all had their own tie-dye and long hair, um, we gave them poems by Julian Beck, translated into Italian to create dances from, and made short plays from newspaper articles. The final performance took place at the Piazza Cesare Battisti, an example of fascist architecture in an otherwise Baroque city. When we left, the Polot Trento stayed together as a troupe and performed again. The most recent Polot workshop took place in Madrid. Rather than an open call, we took recommendations from Spanish curators we had worked with before and formed a group, including actor Vicente Colomar, dancer Manuel Rodriguez Rodriguez, artist Lily Hartman, the two-person collective Momo Inoes, and their friend known as Mono Perro. The workshop consisted of image theater, contact improvisation, artist talks, machine games, discussion groups about feminism, mask work, video making, and a deeply playful contemplation of our interconnected histories of conquest, oppression, sexuality, and spectacle. All of us in My Barbarian are from California, a former Spanish colony, and we were interested in reimagining or imagining ourselves as reinvaders. We talked a lot about empire with our collaborators. We also talked shop, compared residency programs, applications, grants, galleries, and theaters. Lily Hartman brought the masks. Jade Gordon of My Barbarian led us through workshops on mask work and taught us how to perform with them. It became a strange spectacle as we used our bodies to interpret poetic commands. Manuel Rodriguez Rodriguez is a young choreographer who led us through contact improvisation exercises that became a dance of reimagining the first contact between the Aztecs and the conquistadors. Lorca's unfinished play, La Maleficia de la Mariposa, or The Butterfly's Evil Spell, is a metaphorical discussion of homosexual repression. It was translated into English, we translated it into English, and then it was translated back into Spanish, and then performed by the cast as a play within a play. Momui Noes, who had never performed on stage before, spoke in unison. In Spain, gay marriage is legal. Momui Noes choreographed a duet to a song Malik sang at the piano entitled Gay Marry Me, or Casi Me Gay. We called the play La Post Vida Es Sueño, Que Vas a Hacer? in a reference to Calderón de la Barca's La Vida Es Sueño, Life is a Dream, a Spanish golden age play, something like the equivalent of Hamlet in terms of its uh, placement within the canon. The question was posed, uh, post life is a dream, what are you gonna do? Here we are uh, staging a human sacrifice with an audience member who had won a previous dance contest uh, that had happened on stage. This performance was performed in English and Spanish. Vicente Colomar, the actor, was able to simultaneously translate our onstage commands while on the screen behind us videos translating our concepts were projected. It was too cold in the beautiful old charnel house that we used to rehearse, so we had to move to the rehearsals, the rehearsals to the orchestra dressing room. Um, every polot develops a different emphasis. For the project in Madrid, 
Jade had prepared costumes made from the excess of her past projects, remnants sewn into ruffles which evoked flamenco, the Mahas of Madrid, uh, Moorish costume. And this costume turned out to be an infinity we shared with all the performers. In many ways, the performance became one of excess. Um, we, played, uh, we played with our own status as the excess of culture. Wandering the Reina Sofia or the Prado, one gets a sense that all the best art was already made. As living artists, um, aren't we in some way just extra? And yet, uh, even the Velazquez's and the Dali's, which are really weird uh, in person, and the Picasso's are not essential to human life, so doesn't the excess then have some kind of value? And this is the last thing I want to present about this performance. There was another element of this. Uh, we were also working outside of El Matadero, which was the place where we performed the theater thing. We did a, a kind of um, encounter group at ARCO, which is an art fair. Um, and so in a tent in the sprawling convention center, we performed a piece called The Audience is Always Right, a massive audience participation event. The spectators were led uh, through group mirror activities, sing-alongs, guided meditations, which were translated into five languages levitations, group dances, to illustrate the five principles of the Polot. The group of artists had all become, the, the people we were working with had all become Polot certified by this time, and helped guide the audience through the exercises. Um, so I think that that's where I will leave the Polot. It's interesting, I mean, we, we did do another attempt in Lithuania, which uh, you can tell from the sort of slides that are from a video that was made out of the attempt to teach the Polot to Lithuania, that. It, it failed <laughs> um, for a number of different way, reasons, which we can talk about if you want. Um, but then an another kind of collaboration was needed when we were working on a project for the Baltic Triennial where we actually did end up working with other artists, but we had to kind of suspend a lot of this interest in a kind of 60s that didn't actually happen um, in Lithuania. Uh, and also um, a kind of culture, uh, cultural barriers that just made it um, not possible. Um, wow. There's a lot of, it's interesting too because I think these practices bring up so many ideas and one of the reasons why I think people want so much to classify performance and temporal work is because they want to contain those ideas. So of course I'm already doing, feeling like I'm doing that. But um, I did think about the idea of using theater as a community building. That seems to. Was, do you see that as a project that you guys are doing? You're building a community through theater, I mean, or through theatrical practices. Through, through certain. Well, I think in a lot of ways, we're trying to kind of reinvest um, what is available to us as a kind of history of theater with a, a sense of being alive. Yeah. It's happening and it's happening. Um, but it's interesting. I mean. Um, these communities are built for a temporary period of time, the way a cast always kind of coheres for a short period of time, and mm -hmm. then you go away. And we have maintained contact with a lot of the people that we worked with, but one of the reasons we liked to kind of, we really like working with other artists, um, as opposed to maybe providing a kind of, um, you know, community outreach for an institution mm -hmm. that'll just, you know, is because the relationships can produce more work um, and there's a kind of affinity that a kind of global art world creates amongst artists um, that can be both bad and good, right? So. Yeah, I mean, I, I also saw that there's, there, I mean, for myself, I can't speak to if this is your intention, but there's something therapeutic going on. I was thinking about how does politics, the crossover between kind of overt politics and this seems to be more about internalized politics that 
that are being exercised out here? I don't know. It's interesting. That's, a re that's my I mean, own reading, you know. Like, I don't so. know. I don't know. I don't know about therapy. Um, I mean, the, <laughs> well, it's, an, it's not something people like to talk about. Well, it's no. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely interested in psychoanalysis. Um, uh -huh. If you want to talk about that, but the. Um, but you used the word repressed at one point and true, oppressed. That's true. I think rather than therapy on a personal level exclusively, there's a kind of expression, a way giving people an opportunity to figure out ways to express ideas that are, in a lot of ways, sublimated by discourse yeah. and within the art world specifically or within an artistic practice but it's also just a chance to um, really confront sort of political conditions um, because really I think if we look at all of the My Barbarian projects throughout the years group identity and identification is sort of at the center of most of it. Great. We often perform as groups that aren't really us so even the Polot is our sort of theater group version of us uh, radical theater group version of us, which isn't exactly us. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> I think I felt. I think I, I actually interpreted the uh, the uh, persona as actually. Oh, those are like these 60s, 70s ideas that did come out of like mm -hmm. actualization therapy and Gestalt therapy. So I was starting right. to think, oh, right. is that? Oh, so this is interesting. So these are like personas that you're taking on. Yeah, interesting. To a certain degree, yeah, for sure. Okay. And 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 there's a kind of. I mean, there's a humor in each of the five principles of. The lot in many ways is a play on some other concept that we're picking up and they're not all from the 60s uh, yeah. and 70s but most of them are okay um, yeah okay great let's we'll return to that. Edgar thank you Do we need yeah you want to <laughs> thank you Give a talk, and a couple things happen, and I have to warn you about. Uh, the, the first thing is that um, because I have an accent, and that and for some people it's a problem, uh, but I think it's a, it's a benefit. I think. Uh, but so, you know what is what I notice that people kind of uh, cheer when I talk something, when I say something, people cheer and they kind of inform each other what what he's saying. So I recommend you if you have a neighbor that is kind of far away from you, get closer to it, and you can and you can ask him what 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 he's talking about, and, and you can have the full experience. The next thing is for the people who fall asleep right now. I just in CNN they were talking about the, that you're still learning while you're sleeping in a way, and I think so. If you if you fall asleep and you end up walking with the and you have this kind of need to put a mask or get arrested, it's because you really absorb something interesting from the, from the experience anyway. Um, I have to thank you uh, for being invited here, Victoria, that she's been supporting us, and uh, of course, uh, Provisions and, and Don, who is almost like a, a support system that kind of give birth to the Floating Lab Collective. Uh, the Floating Lab Collective basically is um, it's like an extended family in a way. It's, it's beyond, um, beyond the art process, I think. Uh, and it was pretty much, uh, it was born because I needed a uh, babysitter. You know, I have two kids and you know, a babysitter, so the best way is to create a group of people that work for you and, then, and, and they also babysit for you. So it's, it's really an interesting uh, combination of things in a way. In, in a way, it was the need to have a, a family and a network. Um, so, Florida Collective basically is uh, a group of artists that come from different venues, and still, the main thing is an educational element, uncertainty. 
So it's a lot of testing, it's a lot of um, art practices that maybe are not completely resolved, um, but we enjoy it. And the big thing is that this is, doesn't represent my art practice at all. It's, it's one section of what I do in a way. Given that, I'm going to start with explaining a couple, couple projects. Um, one of the main things that we, we, we encounter, or I encounter in, in, in Washington, is the sense of the platform, is this theater of operation, of, of power decision making, and, and how a lot of decisions have been taken in this, in this city that affects so many other countries. So the first project that we come out with was protesting on demand. So we create a system um, online so people could send their protests from all over the world. So just you just type what you want us to protest for two minutes and explain why, and we process it for you, basically, and that was the, the project. And so we create four, four groups, and we want to have that Pentagon to create more of the evilness of, of the system. And, and, um, and it worked really well, actually. We, it was an interesting portrait of, of our society, in a way, and this is what we work with, portraits. Um, so this is some of the some of the some of the protests. Um, they were really funny one, and, and, and what's interesting is that we were. It was happened just a week after the 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 killing or the massacre in Virginia Tech. So I, I was with the, I have a sense that maybe it's no time to do this. You know, maybe it's it's a time to maybe to think about it and maybe what is the meaning to do this kind of thing after that. But I thought maybe this is a good moment for people to express something. And to be honest, we received like maybe one person talking about that. And people start talking about their uh, personal things, like uh, don't pee in my pool. So apparently somebody's peeing on, on, uh, very often in the pool of, some, pool of somebody, and then that was their, their protest. So it's an interesting portrait of our society in a sense, why we care about it. So um, that was really successful, so we were invited to Mexico City to do the same. We didn't want to use the internet as a, as a format to collection data, so we used a video cabin. And, yeah, we, we developed this video cabin that looked like a boating booth, and that was um, move in all means necessary. You know, we move on tricycle, we just carry, we, whatever that was available, we move it into different locations. And we invite people to record on videotape their protest. So each one of them express themselves, and some people start to sing, and poetry, some people stay quiet for like a five minute. Uh, it was an interesting exp experiment, I think. Um, after that, we protest um, the slogans that the people gave us in parallel in Washington, D.C., and in uh, Mexico City. There were uh, live feed projected on, on the museum in Mexico City. And um, I think only in Mexico, was, we didn't do anything in Washington. Another project that I think is kind of um, important for us is the, the American landscape of dreams. And basically, because I'm an immigrant, and uh, I, I have a strong connection with that, 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 that problematic in a sense. And so what we did is basically we designed a project where we build houses, miniature houses. We give to day workers materials and we design houses and to talk about their dreams, uh, aspirations, and but it also, principally, was to talk about the idea of of of, of this kind of uh, definition of how we see immigrants. And 
And it's easy to hate, uh, I think, somebody who is an illegal alien um, immigrant. But it's no, it's no easy to hate to Pedro who want to build a house. I think that, you know, that's the system that I wanted, we want to permeate it. As a matter of fact, we received more than 60 hate uh, emails about this project that I, I, I wish I could have collected, but it was really so much of that, uh, of that email that I, I, I did, but I, I, now I see the power of, you know, that it triggered something, that, 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 if, that project that it creates so, so much hate back. And that was an interesting response. Um, that also, that project is basically um, presenting our, in all these communities, in a way, the houses were host by uh, libraries, uh, churches, so on and so forth. So we wanted really to the community to embrace that. Even the mayor, the mayor uh, accepted to have all the houses inside uh, Maryland, uh, Baltimore. Uh, uh, Mer uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, the, the, the kind of the biggest project that we are embarking right now is called the Scream at the Economy, and mm -hmm. uh, we create a system where the people can call. Um, called to a website and scream. Scream about the economic process, you know, frustration, so on and so forth. That scream is composed by four composers in different parts of uh, this universe. We don't have nobody in Mars yet, but soon. And we designed this device to, um, to play the sounds. It's called a screamer. So the screamer look like this. So we went to Wall Street, of course, and we scream at the economy in Wall Street. It was fantastic, though. We didn't get arrested. We just uh, uh, walk on the beach. <laughs> and um, uh, we also scream at the treasure. Um, and also we create the pick of the week on the Starbucks so you can download the sound composed with the screen. So um, that also was available in some places in the Starbucks. What we, where we engage, actually the conversation could be longer about what we are up to in a way, but we, we base our, our clay basically is uh, Washington. This is our clay, you know, and what happened here? What happened with the... Uh, beltway, what happened with the commuter mentality, what happened with the immigration, you know, what happened with the power system. That's our clay. So we produce stuff related to in that context. So we bought a, a taco truck and that's our museum. So basically a taco truck parks in, in parking lot and then we open it and we have a, a artwork. But it's an artwork that is dealing with the, with the, with the communities. We work close with the communities around where we park and lately, what, and, and if somebody has a, a, an extra check and want to give us money, this is the place to invest. Uh, what we try to convert the, really the taco truck into this museum, uh, and really expand the notion of taco truck. This actually, this is a project done uh, with German architects that they proposed this, this strategy. No taco. Well, we should though, and actually we should come back to the taco. Uh, this is what Marisa said, it's too slow, yeah. That's, a, that, that's a really German, actually. The, the guys have the idea to have water so you can actually take bath, and just, you know, only German can think about something like that. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, the next one is the best one, actually. Marisa actually warned me about that. This is really slow. Um, 
Maurice is actually working on it. Yeah, there you go. Um, a couple projects that we want to work with, and I'm going to make you make a phone call actually today, so don't run away. Um, we want to make uh, convert El, El Camino into a greenhouse, so we're working on that, and we want to have floating uh, floating tents and working with floating. I don't, we haven't designed, we haven't found a way to do that, but soon we're going to have it. Right now, we're working on the collective questions, and in a couple hours, we have to fly to Indianapolis. But I would like you to, if if some of you have signal. I don't have, but you might have. And, um, ask a question. Right now, at 8 o'clock, we're performing in Indianapolis, and we need good questions. And we have a really funny one. So can you call, and I give you two minutes. I'm a teacher, so I, ha I do this all the time. I give you two minutes for everybody. So uh, call this number, this extension, and, and ask a question. Thank you. While everyone's asking their questions, um, those of you who don't have a phone can ask. Oh, sorry. What's happening? Oh, okay. Um, those of you who don't have a phone can ask us a question. So, could I see the hands of everyone who doesn't have a phone? Okay, first question. <laughs> That's a trick. I don't ask me. You have to look at the phone. Oh, I see. I don't have answers. Actually, he asked if, if I didn't have a phone. He didn't really say, did you have a question? So I, I uh, wanted to, uh, I'm just so surprised this is happening. I'm like, is it the 80s? Because I've, I'm kind of, I've been here doing activist work, and it's, it gets very lonely, especially recently post-Obama's election. So I'm actually quite interested in knowing um, the responses you get. I, I thought this was not the greatest turnout I've seen for a noon event here, but I don't come to so many at noon. So I'm, I'm hoping that you're not too disillusioned by this. I think most of it is in the evening. But in any event, I thought you're very inspiring individually and as a group. Thanks a lot. Thanks. This is actually a good turnout. So it's, <laughs> it's an afternoon program on a Friday. I, I think everyone was laughing a lot and smiling a lot during all of the examples. Uh, I know how we talk about humor and irony and these complicated things in our work, but I wonder if the other panelists want to talk a little bit about strategies of humor and irony or absurdity in uh, your works that you've talked about. Especially with politics, which is so serious. How many feminists does it take to screw in a light bulb? That's not funny. <laughs> so the Gorilla Girls were founded because feminists are not funny. And they wanted to uh, take the earnest note out of the message and, uh, and be able to point fingers at people who are really doing egregious stuff at the same time. So the anonymity and the humor were their two innovations that you know, changed feminism forever. Great. Anybody else? I mean, I, you know, it did make me think about humor. Now, this is just kind of another. The humor also allows us to tolerate things. And it allows us to <clears throat> um, survive things. So I, I think about that in, in some ways, too. 
Um, it's it's fascinating to me to see from some of the examples that you shared today, and I know that there's such a rich history of this art making, but um, Martha, looking at some of the early slides that you showed of um, the carnival knowledge, um, that th that it was very raw, it's very raw, and it, it didn't incorporate video necessarily, or audio, or maybe even any kind of technical, you know, uh, props or visual, uh, it, the visuals really human and maybe other uh, object artifacts. Seeing, talking about the, art, the evolution of artistic revolution, how do all of you see technology, at, uh, I mean you've sh shared some examples, playing into the development of this art form, do you see that in some cases there might be a, um, a reference back to uh, more raw performance in in your work or in other ex other artists that you're that you're familiar with. Well, um, that's that's a really interesting question that um, has goes in so many different directions for me. I mean, one of the things that in the current situation that one encounters, and when I have done curatorial work for the Red Cat, which is a, a theater in. Um, in Los Angeles, or that it's a performance space. You know, uh, we see a lot of people audition that uh, to, to do a new piece where they're always saying, "Oh, we're going to project this giant thing behind us later." Like when we, you know, do this for real. And I always ask them, "Why do you need that? Because you just did this other thing without it, and it was fine. I got the picture." You know. Um, so I think there are certain kind of assumptions people make that they have to participate in this moment by using the technology that is sort of dominating so much of our lives. And uh, for us, uh, though, having said that, um, you know, it's another tool, and it's great to have these tools. And as we've worked in the last 10 years, what we can do with uh, things that are portable <laughs> are far beyond what we could at the beginning, which does, um, cha it changes things so that, you know, for example, you don't have to tr travel with a six-piece band in order to have music, things like that. Um, but I also, you know, when you are engaging with the discussion of the spectacle, then sometimes using the tools of the spectacle uh, against it seems like a fairly good strategy. The one thing I would say also is the, that in our work, uh, the kind of aesthetic sense that we're interested in creating for the most part is one that is fairly handmade. And the, the game that you end up playing is this sort of balancing act of, um, you know, dealing with sort of new technologies and new ways of doing things projecting in HD, that kind of stuff, but at the same time uh, making it all rooted in a kind of human activity. Um, so, and, and also kind of feeling like it's, it's, it's still uh, the product of a, of a collaboration among human beings and not necessarily just computers talking to, iPods talking to each other. Edgar, did you? Well, um, our work is basically uh, Engage with, engage, engaging socially and with communities and, and technology, the evolution of that is kind of, is, is absolutely embedded in what we do anyway, the, the need of technology, the use of technology. Uh, I, we, don't, we don't necessarily um, have an adoration for technology per se, but I think the, 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 the use of that is, is important for us uh, as a way of connecting with communities. And, um, yeah, we, we uh, to a point I think we, we are in a crisis right now. We are kind of overusing it, I think, in some moments. And right now, we have been discussions in the performance there. Um, they want to use some sensors, and I tell them I group there. there. And we are discussing about how much is, you know, how, how much is needed when, when it become a little 
overpowering and we lose sense of what we're doing, really, what is our, our practice. Uh, but yes. Yeah, I mean, even the, the, uh, um, the scream, what, I forget, the, the screaming screamer. machine, the screamer. I mean, the screamer is like a low-tech microphone. Yeah. But it's somehow more, um, but visually it works in a really interesting way, and it also speaks to something kind of grassroots and, or, you know, it has a, another, another, another kind of st a street feel. Although, and, and there's something kind of, um, it's funnier too. <laughs> mm. But I, I guess, I, I mean, I also see that the technology allows people to amplify their voice in ways that they could never amplify now. And that in some ways what you have is a far wider platform. So there, and, and it seems to me that the, the excitement about things happening on the internet is that somehow it's democratic. And somehow there, you know, there's a forum there. What, what do you guys think about that? I mean, in terms of, is it really operating that way for you? In terms of having a virtual presence. Virtual presence? Yeah, like an online. I remember presence. when Franklin Furnace went virtual in 1997, I thought we would leave the body behind <laughs> and that art would occur in pixels only and there would be no body left. Well, obviously that didn't happen. Uh, but, but there's a debate in the performance studies community that I'm sure you're all aware of, but I just want to briefly outline it. Peggy Phelan believes that beyond this moment, the now, when we are performing, there is no performance. And uh, Phil Auslander, Philip Auslander, uh, quite the contrary, believes that the, the mediatized image is just as valuable and important and it's basically the same. It's just a mediatized image instead of a live body. So there are these two camps in the uh, scholarly community looking at what it means to perform with the body and what it means to perform with technology. Yeah, that's actually, that's a, that is sort of the, something that every performer faces at some point. Um, the question, I mean, there's a, a Diana Taylor's book, The Archive and the Repertoire, which talks about the difference between the material that's created from the performance and the actual lived moment. And um, I just finished reading Marina Abramovich's biography, and, and one thing that was very clear from the very beginning is that she always knew to not only make a performance that was going to have a really great photo at the end of it, but also have a really great photographer there, all the way from when she started in the 70s in Belgrade, you know. So um, there's an interesting question of what is left behind that also kind of comes up. And in some ways, I guess the web allows you to disseminate a performance, but at the same time, you are watching a very low res, in most cases, version of what had happened once. And it's a completely different experience. So uh, I think for, for us, it's a question often of creating uh, a work out of a performed work. But it doesn't necessarily mean that documentation is going to become the thing that we want to show later. If we're going to do an installation about a performance that we did, we'll just re we might just redo the whole thing in different circumstances. Um, it depends. You, but your work also references history a lot. Yeah. And those are referencing the documents left over by other earlier performers. So in some ways exactly. you're part That's of that true. lineage. I know, yeah. Too. We kind of make fake, a fake archive you uh -huh. know, as we're doing it. Oh, really? Yeah. But what do you mean by, that was a real picture of, of Paradise Now. Uh, that was a real picture of Paradise Now, but the one that preceded it, which was a picture of us kind of emulating, emulating it, 
uh, is, you know, it's uh -huh. actually several different uh -huh. images brought together uh -huh. and then with a filter that makes things look old. I love all the really tacky filters that you can get on the web that make things look old. They're ones that make like fake hairs look like they're in the, you know, and then they're the worst thing in the world. And most uh, video artists just cannot believe you would ever want to use that, but because they're only used for like flashback sequences and like documentaries on VH1 or something of drug abuse by a heavy metal band, you know? So why are you using that? Anyway, sorry. Um, what, the, about, what, about, what about you? <laughs> you guys took, took over another time. Um, what about me? Um, how much, I mean, how much does documentation play into what you do? Uh, well, documentation is everything. We, we're failing miserably with documentation, actually. This is just, I don't know why it's happening, but every time we go somewhere, the documentation is just horrible. Um, I think we need to professionalize that aspect in a way. Um, but what, what we do, basically, we're proxies of people, basically. We, that's the, 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 our, our intent with technology and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, we become the proxies of other people's communities to kind of voice through us. So, create, so we create a platform, social platform. And technology kind of sit in that direction in a way, as, as facilitators of something, of the dialogue. Um, yes. And okay. Great. Um, was there some more questions? Okay. Wow. Uh, I'm going to just start here, and then we're going to slowly go back. Um, this is a question for Alex. I was curious when you were talking about the the Polot model that you guys use um, in traveling. I guess I was just curious because it's, it's a system that you've developed, but obviously you're traveling all around the world working with really specific groups of people. And I'd be curious to hear um, what your process is of developing or you know, sort of tailoring the, the program to the regions that you're working in and how much of that happens when you actually go there or planning beforehand? Or right. Well, it's definitely a combination of the two, but one of the first processes is uh, translation. So, um, and it depends on where you're going and who you have access to in terms of how that, that can come about. In, in Egypt, we really had to translate with the group because there was just too many questions and, and too many different ways in Arabic to communicate things that we didn't have any control over. In Spain, we translated all the text beforehand. And then when you get there, it is really about a conversation what, what of these five principles, which we saw in our own work in some way, shape, or form, that we bring, what resonates with the group? And, and toward the end, it always kind of veers in one of the five directions, you know, and, and some of them become much more um, palpable depending on the performance. But it's, it's a real question. And when, when we went to um, Lithuania, and presented our work as a kind of artist talk. We want to get you guys involved. We want to do a Polot here. First of all, it was a very small group of people that showed up. And secondly, when we said, OK, mandate to participate, everybody's going to sing. And they went like this. <laughs> and we realized that, that it wasn't going to happen, that mandate to participate in a um, former uh, in a, you know, Soviet-occupied uh, nation, this doesn't sound the same, right? And then. <laughs> And then, and even in the States, it sounds kind of, it's ridiculous, but it's not like as scary, <laughs> you know? So uh, that was one. In Egypt, suspension beliefs had to be changed completely. Um, it, I think what we're positing are possibilities with the Polot. And in a way, you know, you kind of have to be in, like, want to play along, kind of pretend that we are all in this sort of encounter group together that has, like, rather than therapeutic kind of political ideas, but at the same time, you know, 
holding hands with strangers and singing feels good uh, for some reason to me. So, um, so it's a thing where I guess we just had to create an adaptable system that always is going to change. And, and language, I think, is the key. Uh, we're, we, are, we do work in a visual field somehow, uh, but uh, for us, the text is sort of a, a starting point, and so it's a lot about translation. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for everybody for putting this on. This is a question for Martha and for everybody, really. Um, I'd like to hear more about bookworks, especially um, where bookworks are now in 2010, where they're in the 1970s and 80s, and also the correspondence between performance and bookworks. Okay, so I'm going to start ask backwards by saying that the, the same artists who are making books, uh, which I gathered in the early days of Franklin Furness, were also doing performance and we're also doing street works and we're also doing installation work and it was all one big blob and books were not, there wasn't a term, well Don can help me out here, there wasn't really a field yet, there wasn't a term for artist books, they were works of art that were masquerading as books and the work of art would assume the appropriate form uh, needed for that idea, whatever the idea was. Uh, and in the er but in the early days, I was kind of wedded to because I came out of literature. I, I was wedded to the idea that that um, artists would read from their books. So the first performances were I call them artists reading, and they they just um, brought William Wegman brought his dog and. Uh, Martine Abelea showed up with a stool and everybody started playing with, they started doing performance art right away. And they, they weren't going to, um, Eileen Miles, Eileen Miles did a performance in which she explains that the difference between a poet and a performance artist is the poet reads the poetry and the performance artist performs to the audience. Um, what was the ass end of your question? I forget now. Oh, the differences between where we are now in 2010 and what you see. Oh, 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 so there was a, um, uh, a feeling of betrayal, I think, in the artist book community when Franklin Furness went virtual and abandoned the book. But again, I, I see the internet as a, it's just a one giant networked text and image blob and uh, uh, I'm I'm happy I'm happy in to be to be swimming in the in the web and um, I don't really feel that we abandoned the book at all okay was there another question I'm wondering uh, in this I guess the 21st century we keep talking about the digital the online the virtual world and as artists do all performing artists feel a pressure that you must take this into account into your work or that you must always be aware that your work could be filmed and put up on YouTube like 20 minutes later how much does that affect what you do or your planning process well um, it, yeah well my my group actually, because they're kind of younger than me, they all kind of, they wanted to have everything right away, and Flickr, and their Twitter, and actually they're tweeting from, from Indianapolis right now. And to be honest, I don't even know how to make a Facebook. I don't know. 
So they, they're really, it's really important for them uh, to have a YouTube. And I, I'm, I'm old-fashioned in a way. I, I kind of uh, don't, don't have the need. Uh, but I think th we are participating on, on, we're using the internet as a, as a mechanism of, of, of reaching people. I don't think we, I don't think uh, uh, I have the urge to kind of expose what we're doing too much on the internet um, right now. But it is important, I feel, for, for members of my collective anyway. Yeah, I, it's an interesting um, sort of question. And in some ways, I'm in denial of our online presence and don't want to even know what's on YouTube. I get really nervous when like, somebody puts up a new video because inevitably it's, I'm off key or something, or it's a bad angle of me. Um, and this is my good angle. Um, but the, the, the thing is, obviously, it's a tool as well. I think one thing that the, that the digital sort of situation, um, aside from creating a, an amazing and perfectly wonderful archive that's alive and hopefully, you know, net neutrality will, whatever, and everything will be great and we'll be able to get access to, you know, every David Bowie and Lena Lovitch performance ever or whatever, you know, through YouTube, which is where, where for a performer it has a certain value. You can just try to find some crazy performance that you think may have happened on YouTube. But the other thing is it also emphasizes that going back to the Phelan Auslander thing, that there is a real value to the not mediated experience. Um, and one thing I always want the institutions that we work with to understand when we do a Polot project is that even if the final performance, which happens in public, is a total failure, there was a valuable exchange that took place prior to that, which was the workshop itself. Um, and that, that was something that happened among human beings in a room together, often touching each other in some way or another, or harmonizing, or doing some writing text together, translating from one language to another, doing something that has an immediate and interpersonal value. Um, that isn't something that can necessarily happen on the web in the same way, even though it is fun to chat on Facebook. I just want to add one more thing. The issue of rights which we never gave a thought to in the 70s, uh, is a big deal now. The, the person who owns the image of Yvonne Rayner wrapping her naked body in an American flag is the estate of Peter Moore. Yvonne has no rights to that image, and she has to buy it. Wow. That's, uh, that actually bring, brought up a question for me about you all are working with, you are, you know, the, how you work with institutions and how you distinguish your work from those institutions when working with them? Or is that important or not? Um, not a real clear question, but <laughs> have you thought um, about that? Well, I run an institution and right. we've been navigating for 34 years now this uh, anti-institutional institutional stance, yeah. which um, uh, it's, a, it's every year it's a new Crapshoot. You have to figure out how to raise the money and how to relate to your audience and how to present the artists. And if the artists want to do illegal things, how are you going to do that? And I guess from the artist's points of view, what makes, what makes, talk about the collaborating with institutions and how that works it's, for you. Um, yeah, I think I agree, I agree with you. Actually, as a matter of fact, I, I feel really bad about it. Um, I'm going to confess to you guys, I did a, I did a lecture in the World Bank uh, about, about processing on demand. So it was kind of strange. And it was a keynote speaker on top of that. You know, like <laughs> after me went the, the president of the World Bank to talk about social responsibility and, and technology. And um, I, 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 I wonder, you know, it was, what, what, was, what was about that? And um, I, I, th I think we live in this kind of contradiction in a way of, of 
of we participate, we criticize. And, and I think um, mm. it's a human condition, I guess, toward the yeah. end. Yeah. I don't know, they need to be established, whatever. Yeah. So, I don't know, I, I mean, just to talk for a second about this, um, I think one thing to think about is the word collaboration and how you know, there are, it sort of has a positive ring to it in the current milieu. But of course, you know, one could collaborate with a regime that occupies your country, for example. So that is sort of one of the things that I always think about when we are going into a new collaboration, say, with the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles or something like that. Um, to what extent am I now complicit with whatever they are, you know? But at the same time, I mean, it's a very sophisticated space where one must understand that an institution is also made up of people, it's made up of departments. You know, if you're working with the education and public programs department, the vibe is very different than when you're working with curatorial, mm. for example. Um, because it's a different set of mandates, even within the institution itself. Um, so I think this anti-institutionalism as a kind of uh, knee-jerk reaction is, you know, obviously a problem. But even if you look at somebody like uh, Andrea Fraser, who uh, is an artist who works in institutional critique, who was my teacher in grad school, um, you know, some people interpret the work to be actually in some way anti-institutional. Um, but that's, others see it as being completely dependent upon institutions to even exist in the first place. And I think that that kind of nuanced position is one that an artist has to kind of at certain point face unless you want to ignore the framework that is around the framework of the frame of the picture that you just put on the wall, you know? Um, which a lot of people are happy to do, but in performance it's totally impossible. Right, great. Okay, we have a question back here. Hi, I have three interrelated questions to all of you. One is um, coming from my own frustration as an art historian to define performance today. So what would be the word in all of your opinions to uh, most adequately describe what you do, uh, because I think the, the word performance resonates differently when we talk about the 70s and 80s and today. Is it action art? Is it um, intervention? Is it social engagement? How, in your personal opinion, would you, what would be the word you would describe it? That's A. Two, um, not trying to make a difference or a parallel between the early performance art 70s and 80s and now, what are the major differences um, within these 30 years. And third question, speaking of institutionalization, uh, what comes to mind is Marina Abramovic retrospective at MoMA, which I think is the first major exhibition of performing art or you know, using a, sing solo, a single person. How does it feel to see all these actions or the individual performances together amassed? And how does it feel having them under the umbrella of such an institution as MoMA, and many of those performances came as anti-institutional. Thank you. So first up is, is the term performance art, which sucks. <laughs> there used to be a term body art, which we liked a lot. It just, I don't know, it became identified with a period of time, and so then we were not able to use it anymore. And the reason it sucks is the association with performing art, which we, uh, you know, we've both been, Alex and I have both been talking about the relationship of, well, we'll call it performance art for lack of another term, and theater. Uh, performing arts are other people telling you, the instrument or the dancer or the musician, what to do. And performance art is 
99% of the time motivated and created and even acted and produced by the, you know, the artist, the artist, him or herself. Uh, there have been various attempts, actually there's a whole seminar at MoMA not so long ago trying to come up with a new term. We, we were unsuccessful. <laughs> uh, so what was the second question? I guess it changes from 60s, 70s. Oh, yeah. 70s, 80s, I think was, I was, I read 60s, but you don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I think it's the, you know, the social and political focus keeps moving, and so the work focuses on uh, um, the, um, the Guerrilla Art Action Group was pretty mad at the Museum of Modern Art and its uh, lack of recognition of the war, the war in Vietnam and of women and that was in the 60s and uh, so the Art Workers Coalition galvanized around those uh, issues. Um, our, our artists, artists galvanize around whatever social and political issues are, are out there and uh, like I said earlier I, I think that Certainly in the Bush era, privacy was a big issue and this notion of surveillance was a big issue. And right now I'm not sure. But do you, yeah. What do you think? I mean, yeah, this is interesting. I think that, I mean, looking at your work, I automatically have the sort of, oh, why are we, you know, there's this word retardataire. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It comes up in art history books sometimes. It was a retardataire move. Um, he made cubism at the wrong year, you know. Um, and I think, oh wow, we're doing this like theater revival project in some ways. Um, and then I'm looking at this stuff where you create these sort of situations in which the viewer participant has a completely different relationship. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a question in some ways of kind of trying to reinvest in history that some artists are going through. But that's definitely where I'm coming from, a kind of question of cultural identity after the question of cultural identity was posed, killed, and then returns because we still have nations and we still have, but we also have globalism, you know. So I don't know, there is a kind of quest, I guess, for um, some, some, for belief and for finding out how, how the production of belief, you know, um, can actually be uh, mobilized towards some kind of positive relationship among people. Um, but I mean, if we're gonna talk about a subject, I think that may be part yeah. of what we're looking for That's now. Good. Uh, yeah, the term performance, I don't think applies for us at all. I mean, as, we, as you say, we create situations in a way, yeah? and we create social platforms. And in that social platform, maybe it's, a, it's a, the encounter with us, that the encounter, the encounter can last for a minute to five minutes, in a way. I don't think it's that. Um, it's a different type of, uh, of aesthetics, in a way. And, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, we can place ourselves inside, inside the relational aesthetics kind of ground, but it's still kind of a little lacking of, of what we really uh, were up to. Um, in terms of theme, in a way, or what we're focusing on, on is basically uh, social relations, in a way, and social relation that it has a, a larger kind of uh, context in terms of migration, uh, education, power, politics, and so on and so forth, and, and the influence of, of technology in that social relations. Um, so we found, we tried to find creative way to, to embark into that discussion in a way about social relations. Um, I don't think I can, I think he placed, both of them placed it beautifully. The, the most problematic thing that Marina Abramovich has done isn't her show at MoMA, which has documentation of her past work and 
okay, the beautiful nude bodies recreating her her uh, past work as well. It was the performances that she recreated at the Guggenheim Museum. That was the, the, the notion of recreation. Is it possible or desirable to for Marina Abramovich, a woman, to recreate Seedbed, the piece that Vito Conchi did under a platform at Songman Gallery in 1971. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought they were horrifying. That's, that's interesting. Um, the question of reperformance is one that I think, you know, she, uh, to a certain degree, she brought it up. Um, but the strategy, when it, just reading her biography, the strategy seems to be to create, a, to assert a canon of performance art, one in which we've got Boys, Akanchi, Gina Pane, and uh, Valley Export, and then we've got uh, two pieces by Marina Abramovich, and she performs all of them. So she created both a canon of art history and herself at the center, where we now have documentation and photographs of her playing every single famous performance artist that she's listing in this list. The other thing that she did was create durational performances out of performances that had other that were other things. So seven hours of the Valley Export piece without doing the Valley Export piece. So there are a lot of questions around that. But when it comes to reperformance, I think it, it's if the artist creates a work that can be reperformed or performed by another body than the artist's body, and that's part of the, the piece, it makes perfect sense to me. But in this particular instance, it's a really interesting art historical trick. Uh, to, to do that, and it makes me kind of jealous I didn't think of it, you know, but, <laughs> but then if I had done it, it would have been in my living room, not the Guggenheim, so no one would have seen it. <laughs> I don't she, know. She kind of made her body into a museum. I mean, she's yeah. carrying the history of performance in her body, and then so as an, she becomes an institution that interacts mm -hmm. with other institutions, mm -hmm. which I think in some ways she's accomplishing. <laughs> um, we have time for um, one more question, and then we have to stop. Alex, you're, in your um, discussion, you showed a lot of uh, uh, documentation of your workshops in Madrid and Cairo. And then that one image in Eastern Europe, and you alluded to it being a failure. And I always learn a lot from failures. I'm curious uh, you know, how that went and if you learned anything. Oh, yeah, way too much. Um, Lithuania is deep. It's small, but deep, yeah. Uh, and we were in Vilnius, uh, which is a, a city that does not, didn't always have a state. It moved, you know, sometimes it's part of Poland. It's a long story, but what ended up happening, initially we realized that we weren't going to be able to get a group together and that there was this sort of thing where the, um, the art world was incredibly separate from other... Um, so there was this, there's the Contemporary Art Center, which was where contemporary artists shown in Vilnius, and nobody from a theater place or from a music place, or you know, they were not in dialogue with one another. So the idea of performance art in and of itself was sort of questionable anyway, and it had to be very much a kind of um, conceptually based performance in order for it to make sense to that audience. We ended up finding a, a trio called uh, Leonis Slabini. We just combed Vilnius looking for performers to work with, and uh, which means sad dragons, uh, three um, young Lithuanian theater performers who, in an otherwise really dour concert where everyone was doing these sort of sad ballads of sadness, this three-person group, two boys and a girl, pop out in the middle of the stage and immediately go into this crazy folk showbiz insanity performance. So we ended up collaborating with them, and what we really ended up doing was kind of trying to exhume a history that they knew about, and it would, which we didn't, which was the partisan resistance to the Soviet 
uh, to the Soviet Union in the 50s, which has become sort of the national myth of Lithuania. So we ended up finding a way to work with people, but it wasn't, we couldn't do it in the structure that we had come with. So to, you know, kind of getting back to your question, sometimes the structure really is too much of a structure. But we learned a lot. I learned a lot about Lithuania. Do you want to talk about that after, after class? Yeah. <laughs> I'd be happy to. After class. <laughs> well, I think the rest of the questions will have to be done um, uh, after. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much for...